Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Hi, Johnny. Hello, my love. Hello, everyone. So today we wanted to do an episode on something that we heard someone talking about recently, and it, it was really interesting to me. They said they talked to Billy Graham several years before he died, and Graham said that he felt in the future God was not going to use figures, like raise up figures who gain followers, you know, to cause change, sort of like, you know, the way Billy Graham did in his lifetime. Right. So big, major figures that people tend to follow. Right. But he said God's going to use little people doing little things big change. Yep. And I think we're starting to see hints of that all around us, not just in the Christian world, but in other ways too. Yeah. Yeah. That people at the local, very small level are making changes that are slowly bringing about larger changes. Correct. Right. Jordan Peterson said, clean your room. Right. That's your first place to start. Mm -hmm. Work on the local thing that is part of your purview. And- for somebody like you who is enthralled by Paradise Lost, work on your marriage. Yes. The very. Well, and in our own way, I think that is our central mm-hmm. message mm-hmm. to the world. We need to restore Christian marriage right. to what it was because that's the foundation of everything else. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And unless we get that right, we are, and not perfectly right, mm-hmm. but we've got to turn it around from what it's become. Right, right. So anyway, that got us thinking about C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia and specifically the chapter in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe called Deeper Magic from the Dawn of Time. Right. And when we actually did this originally, mm-hmm. when we did a no compromise on it, I remember you being particularly fascinated with this and seeing it in a way that I had never seen it before. Right. And it actually has played out as we've moved forward from that point. And so in revisiting it now, in a lot of ways, we were prefiguring it then and we're picking up on the point that you made then mm-hmm. and expanding it and understanding exactly. it better ourselves. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Understanding it better. So this chapter struck us, like you said before, and we did do a an episode on no compromise, which we can link to in the description. So, okay, let's set this chapter up. In the previous chapter, chapter 14, the white witch, she's the one who rules Narnia for anybody who isn't, if there's anybody out there who's never read <laughs> or seen the Chronicles of Narnia. But, you haven't, please go do it now. Exactly. So she's the one who rules Narnia, and she makes it always winter and never Christmas. So, oh yeah, and and what I'm going to say now, I'm not saying this because I'm thinking atheists or witches, you know, but I think of like atheists and and those who just deny God. They do make the world always winter, you know. I mean, their world has to be almost always winter and never Christmas, don't you think, in a way? Well, I think atheists themselves can make a good case that they don't really believe that and that they embrace a whole lot of good, including ethics. Yeah. But I think they do that in spite of their underlying presuppositions. Right. They're refusing to face right. where the logic of their position takes them. And that's what They're I mean. They're still holding on to what Nietzsche called the corpse of God. Right. And that's what I mean. They're, in denying that, there's like no hope and no magic, Yep. no meth. Yep. They don't bring anything like that to the table, you know, which the they would make us distinctly human. Right. And they would say those things 
are what make us unreasonable. Yep. But maybe some people like winter with no Christmas. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, in the previous chapter, the enemies of Aslan kill him. And we talked about this before, because traditionally, what you just said a little while ago, that in my past, I always associated the killing of Aslan with the death of Jesus and the resurrection. But when we read this the last time, that was what, like last year or over? I think it was last year, maybe early this year. I'm mm-hmm. not sure. We I are, forget when it was. Holy cow, we are almost to the end of 2023 <laughs> <I know. laughs> now. Wow. So when we read it last time, this section felt more than just the gospel message. It, it seemed to be the, the current idea of the death of God in our culture and in science and, and just about everywhere of mm-hmm. killing God. And binding God. Right, yes. right. Okay, so I'm going to start reading from the chapter on the death of Aslan. And like I said, this is the chapter before, the chapter we really want to focus on. Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies, but it never came. Four hags grinning and jeering, yet also at first hanging back and half afraid of what they had to do, had approached him. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch. The hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph when they found that he made no resistance at all. Then others, evil dwarfs and apes, rushed in to help them, and between them they rolled the huge lion over on his back and tied all his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise, even when the enemy, straining and tugging, pulled the cord so tight that they cut into his flesh. Then they began to drag him towards the stone table. And that's that's how it is today. You know, I mean, we're binding God. We think we're taking him to his death. Right. Interestingly enough, Chesterton talks about this too. He talks about the twilight of the gods. And remember in mm-hmm. the introduction to uh, The Everlasting Man, he right. said whether or not it is the twilight of the gods is another question. Mm-hmm. But he said, this is how we're treating things today. This is the Hegelian notion that there is no such thing as transcendence. Right. This is the materialist worldview the metaphysics that tells us there is no transcendent world out there, and all that we have is the world of imminence, right. the reality that's here before us. And that's exactly what it is. So we're binding God. Right. We're, we're making sure that anything that we see, we're not going to interpret in that way. <laughs> right, right. And, and and we're doing it with shouting and cheering as if we're doing something brave. Oh, yeah. Something brave, something beautiful, something mm-hmm. something that is intellectually rigorous. I Mm -hmm. hear that all the time. (laughs) But you're not being rigorous. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're not following the scientific method. Well, science has limitations because science is only looking at that which is right here. And science has great value because it does look carefully at what's here. But because what the supernatural is, is not here, the best that we can do is understand it as something that is pointed at. Right. And they want to deny all the pointing. Mm-hmm. Right. And of course, if the lion or if God chooses, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. Right. But he he, he allows them. Right. Sorry. That's something that A.E. Wildersmith, no, 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 it wasn't A.E. Wildersmith. It was Dr. Kurt, Kurt Wise. Wise talked mm-hmm. about too, that restraint of God who allows us oh, yeah. a latitude in many ways, because 
he loves us enough to give us that latitude so that he doesn't have to judge us so harshly. Right. And it's a mercy. It's it's part of his mercy. Right, right. Stop, said the witch. Let him first be shaved. Another roar of mean laughter went up from her followers as an ogre with a pair of shears came forward and squatted down by Aslan's head. Snip, snip, snip went the shears and masses of curling gold began to fall to the ground. Then the ogre, I think of the the curling gold as as God's word, just snipping away his word and taking you know taking him out of everything. All of the glory of God is right. gone. Right. And actually, you know, this oddly enough, in my atheism, I never radically turned against Christ. Mm-hmm. There was a sense in which I still look at the beauty of the Christian myth, as I thought of it, as something that had tremendous beauty and a level of truth that was important, even if it was mistaken. Mm-hmm. And I've seen something like that even in the genetically modified skeptic, that young man that we've looked at online. Mm-hmm. He too seems to say, look, there's something of value here. Let's not be total idiots as atheists. But there is a sense in which especially the new atheists mm-hmm. have taken the idea that what we must do is absolutely denigrate. Right. Jesus. I've seen that in a lot of the atheists that I've talked to, like in our YouTube interviews. Right. What they delight in is mocking Jesus, just as the Romans did before the crucifixion. And that's what's going on here, too, as well. It's like these are the people who are always claiming that we need to be tolerant and understand and appreciate the views of others. That is, the the Islamists, Mm -hmm. uh, the Buddhists, and other religious traditions. They tell us that we must be tolerant of them. And yet they are absolutely intolerant of the Christian faith and make a mockery of it. And this is, of course, exactly what Chesterton talked about in The Everlasting Man. Right. Because they are in the shadow, because they are in a state of reaction against Christianity, because they haven't gotten the proper distance from it, they can't see it objectively. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, so we we stopped. No, no, that was really good. We stopped at the masses of curling gold falling to the ground, and you said it's like his glory. Then the ogre stood back, and the children watching from their hiding place could see the face of Aslan looking all small and different without its mane. The enemies also saw the difference. Why, he's only a great cat, after all, cried one. Is that what we were afraid of, said another? Muzzle him, said the witch. And even now, as they worked about his face, putting on the muzzle one bite from his jaws would have cost two or three of them their hands. But he never moved. And this seemed to enrage all that rabble. Everyone was at him now. And isn't that what we experience constantly? It's like the anger. You know, if if God is not who he says he is and he's not there, why is there so much anger? anger? And And the more quiet he is towards them, the the more hatred and more anger they have. Yeah. Those who had been afraid to come near him, even after he was bound, began to find their courage. And for a few minutes... The two girls could not even see him. Yeah. And this And that's what happens when they to, Go ahead. I was gonna say when when God comes out of everything, when there's when they take him out of everything, out of science, out of history, out of everything, 
even those who know him can't see him anymore. Mm-hmm. And for a moment, <laughs> right? The the atheist community they they think that they're being brave by throwing this the heaping this abuse on Christians and Christianity and on Christ. And there's no bravery right. in that because you've got the entire community that you're holding on to. In fact, the entire worldview of our age today right. supporting you right. in that. So there's no purpose in, there, in doing this. Right. There's no bravery in it at all. Right. The people who are on the outside, who are daring to stand for Christ now, really are the brave ones. Mm-hmm. It's like, holy cow, you're going to face all kinds of opposition right. if you actually take a stand that dares to claim that Christianity is rational right or that, that god's intelligent or that god's word is true or that it's know? true yeah. yeah so thickly was he surrounded by the whole crowd of creatures kicking him hitting him spitting on him jeering at him at last the rabble had had enough of this and they began to drag the bound and muzzled lion to the stone table and we see that the stone table had the laws of narnia right yeah Written that it, it what is the foundations of narnia so they take Aslan, God, and... Kind of like the Pentateuch. Right. The same and, thing that JEDP is trying to do right, now. And bound him to his word. Some pulling, some pushing. He was so huge that even when they got him there, it took all their efforts to hoist him onto the surface of it. <laughs> Makes me think of what a work it is for them. You know, some of them have committed their entire life to destroy to destroying God. Yep. So it's like he's so huge that it takes everything to hoist him onto the sacrificial table. Right. Then there was more tying and tightening of cords when once Aslan had been tied and tied so that he was really a mass of cords. And that's that really hit me because it's like we have convoluted God's word so much with scholar, you know, scholars, academia and science and all of these things we have we have twisted and 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 told everybody what it means and and tried to make stories and tried to <laughs> it just becomes a theories. Right, it becomes a mass of cords. Yep. And tied and tied so that he was really a mass of cords on the flat stone, a hush fell on the cl- crowd. Then she began to wet her knife. It looked to the children when the gleam of the torchlight fell on it as if the knife were made of stone, not of steel, and it was a strange and evil shape. Not sure why he points out that the the knife was made of stone and not steel, but still can't think of why that would be. Yeah, I think it's the primitive nature mm-hmm. of it. It's going back to the sacrificial system. Right. And there's that sense in which right there's the pagan sacrificial system there. And and this actually is a puzzling thing for me in Lewis, because there's something about the Chronicles of Narnia that doesn't quite, I'm not going to say it doesn't quite jive, but it leaves out like the the Old Testament sacrificial system seems to be absent in some way. Right. Alluded to slightly, perhaps, right. here, but it's only in its almost negative aspect mm-hmm. and not in its positive aspect of you know, maybe I'm wrong about yeah. that because it is the the witch does sacrifice Aslan in place of Eustace. Yeah. So there is uh, that. 
Edward, yeah, Edmund. <laughs> I can't even get the name right. right. <laughs> Sorry. Or and maybe even as we progress, we think we're progressing forward. We're actually becoming more primitive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's something actually, <laughs> you say that, that says something just today in the shower. I was listening to G.K. Chesterton talking about exactly that point, that so often the higher scholars tend to think that we're on this upward evolutionary movement in terms of even religious evolving. And he says, no, more than likely, if we look at the facts and understand it clearly, it's just as likely that what we are doing is devolving from a monotheistic view into a more polytheistic view, Mm -hmm. and that it was the Jews who managed to hold on to the older view Mm-hmm. That paganism started with right, right. the idea that there is a single local God. God. So maybe in a way, as the stone knife, as she thinks she's progressing and killing God, which is in her mind progressive, right. she's actually devolving yeah. back to primitive methods. Yeah. As last she drew near, she stood by Aslan's head. Her face was working and twitching with passion. But his looked up at the sky, still, quiet, neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. Then just before she gave the blow, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, And now who has won? The children did not see the actual moment of the killing. They couldn't bear to look and had covered their eyes. I guess kind of none of us can say that we see the actual killing of God because it it happens all over the place. Yeah. Okay, so at that point, Aslan is killed. She brings the knife down. He dies. Okay, so let's move on to chapter 15. This is a chapter that we want to actually talk about. It's called Deeper Magic from Before the Dawn of Time. And this is what we talked about at the beginning. This is where we get the part about the little people doing little things. Okay, so I'll start reading the chapter. While the two girls still crouched in the bushes with their hands over their faces, they heard the voice of the witch calling out, Now follow me all, and we will set about what remains of this war. It will not take us long to crush the human vermin and the traitors now that the great fool, the great cat, lies dead. At this moment, the children were for a few seconds in very great danger, for with wild cries and a noise of skirling pipes and shrill horns blowing, the whole of that vile rabble came sweeping over the hilltop and down the slope right past their hiding place. They felt the specters go by them like a cold wind, and they felt the ground shake beneath them under the galloping feet of the minotaurs, and overhead there went a flurry of foul wings and a blackness of vultures and giant bats. At any other time, they would have trembled with fear, but now the sadness and shame and horror of Aslan's death so filled their minds that they hardly thought of it. And that's kind of the place where you get to when you look around and you see God's word being trampled and you see just, and and so convoluted and so tied up and and you see God disappearing from everything. Yeah, it, Um, it really is a moment. And you spare, and you look out, and you just hear story after story, news story after news story, right? And it's kind of like the wild cries and the noise of the pipes and the shrill horns blowing, and the rabble coming, or you know, and it it just seems like it's sweeping in yep. all of this evil. Yep. As soon as the wood was silent again, Susan and Lucy crept out into the open hilltop. 
The moon was getting low and thin clouds were passing across her, but still they could see the shape of the lion lying dead in his bonds. And down they both knelt in the wet grass and kissed his cold face and stroked his beautiful fur, what was left of it, and cried till they could cry no more. And then they looked at each other and held each other's hands for mere loneliness and cried again. And then again, we're silent. That kind of describes the world we find ourselves in now without God. That, that part where they say they looked at each other and held each other's hands for mere loneliness and cried again. Yeah. There's just nothing. Yeah, that sense that you're holding on to the beauty of the person who is now gone, that is mm-hmm. Aslan, the God of this world, the beauty that really built mm-hmm. the Judeo-Christian culture. And is now being systematically wiped out from it. Mm -hmm. And you feel so alone. And even if you don't know that's what it is that's missing, you know there's some beauty, there's something you you strive for and you reach for, and it's not there. You can't, you don't know where it is. You don't know where to find it. I was thinking actually of the the Christian community, the Mm -hmm. sense in which we look around us and we feel like, what in the world is Mm -hmm. going on here? Our world is crashing around us. Mm -hmm. They've taken away what is most valuable and most important. And many times the Christians have actually adapted to it and and brought it into into them because they don't. Well, yeah, this is interesting because you're actually talking here about the sense in which we've compromised with the world's viewpoint. Right. We brought a little bit. We're kind of in the center. We bring a little bit of God's word and then we... We try to adapt it to the world, to the world, rather right. than to recognize that God is the authority. Right. It starts. It starts with God. It starts with His Word, and then it goes out from there. Well, we'll be talking about that later. Okay. okay. <laughs> at last, Lucy said, "I can't bear to look at that horrible muzzle. I wonder, could we take it off?" So they tried, and after a lot of working at it, for their fingers were cold, and it was now the darkest part of the night. They succeeded, and when they saw his face without it, they burst out crying again and kissed it and fondled it and wiped away the blood and the foam as well as they could. And again, this just reminds me of what we're seeing in the hearts of the people who left God today and the hearts of people who don't have the hope of God. And it was all more lonely and hopeless and hard than I know how to describe. I wonder, could we untie him as well, said Susan presently? But the enemies, out of pure spitefulness, had drawn the cord so tight that the girls could make nothing of the knots. And that makes me think of academia and convoluted theories and explanations and science and experts and so much information going to and fro. It's like a mass of cords and and it's been tied so tightly on God, trying to destroy him or even worse, trying to make the eternal, the infinite God fit our world and our scientific theory so that now everything is confusing. Yeah, this is so and, right. right. And we can't make anything of all these knots yeah. that, that we've created. And and it's, again, I think in some cases, the Christians have allowed all of that into Christianity. But yeah, go ahead. For sure. And it's like the worldview has become this convoluted network of knots. Mm-hmm. And that knots has tied Christianity and Christ down. Not yeah. because Christ is yeah. powerful. Like they said before, if he wanted to, he could just take one Paul right. and destroy God them all. Has allowed it. Right, right. And right. that 
That's, because he's given us our freedom. Right. And if we've decided to tie him down and not to allow his glory, his goodness to invade our lives and to bring us good things, then we will bear the consequences of losing God. But tying him down, he mm -hmm. allows us to do that. And then on the other hand, the Christian sees what appears to be God dead, even though we know he's not. And we lose hope like Susan and Lucy. And the following that comes here, it gives us a lot of hope. We'll, we'll see. It, it, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to get ahead of myself. Yeah. Well, so I, I, I just real quickly, I'll just say this. Go ahead, John. The Hegelian viewpoint is a totalitarian mm-hmm. viewpoint. That is, it invades everything. Its tendrils have gone out from that sort of secular viewpoint Mm -hmm. into all points, including the church. Right. And it has now brought us, I mean, you and I have been studying this point. It has actually gotten into the, even the conservative evangelical Mm -hmm. seminaries and Mm -hmm. it's making them compromise the basic structures of the word of God in favor of this secular worldview and agreeing with them. Instead of bringing God down to earth, right? Bringing God down to earth, immanentizing, God, yeah. as we talk about and, in the Hegelian worldview, in a way making it always winter and never Christmas. Exactly right, <laughs> making it always. Lewis, <laughs> the more I live and the mm-hmm. better I understand the world, not that I think Lewis always gets it right. I no, have my issues with him when we read his essays. There's things I think he gets wrong, right? But he was one of the most perceptive critics that understood the nature of the world and the logic in which it moved of anyone. I mean, astounding mm-hmm. how right. well he understood. And actually, as I've studied G.K. Chesterton, <laughs> You're starting to find... I'm coming to understand how <laughs> those two are linked yeah. so incredibly but tightly. Lewis, he read Chesterton. Yes, it, it really influenced him. And understood him. At a level, I think very few do. I think it's because they were both British. (laughs) You have to be British to understand British, right? Yeah, (laughs) but I'm I'm understood. As I've listened again, Mm -hmm. over and over and over again, to G.K. Chesterton on our Simple Simple Gifts podcast, Mm -hmm. I've listened over and over again to myself reading them. Yeah. And I have gained so much insight. Chesterton... Was like, stunningly brilliant. Yeah, it's like layers. And I, I wish, yeah, I mean, I would encourage all of our listeners to listen to Chesterton, not once, but yeah. over and over and yeah. over again, and you will begin to see the depth of understanding this man had. Lewis mm-hmm. said that he can barely even begin to pity those who called Chesterton the chief or the king of contradiction or whatever it was that they called him. Yeah. He said they don't have any clue yeah. about who Chesterton was. And he's right. Right. I've right. seen that because at a superficial view, Chesterton may be playing with those sort of contradictions. Right. But when you begin to understand the depth of what Chesterton is saying, he was brilliant. brilliant. Mm-hmm. At a level that only C.S. Lewis himself, I think, matched mm-hmm. in the 20th century. Yeah, exactly. So I think the next section, again, describes the feeling that's permeating our culture, both in the secular and Christian. It, it was where I was spiritually until recently. I hope no one 
who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing was ever going to happen again. At any rate, that was how it felt for these two. And that, as a Christian, and and in your Christian walk, you get to that point, you look around, you see all of this evil that's sweeping down over the, you know, over the land, like the witch, the hags, the ogres, you know, all of those things. And then you see how convoluted God's word has become and the understanding of God's word and, and the knots and, and you, and you're, you're looking at all of that and you see that God has almost allowed himself to die in the world. Mm -hmm. And then you, um, you get to the point where there comes in the end, a sort of quietness where you feel as if nothing was ever going to happen again. And I think, oddly enough, that in our relationship, Mm -hmm. as I was coming back to Christ, I drove you to that point, right? (laughs) Where you were feeling that, and you said to me, you, you almost got to the point, as I was coming back, of losing your own faith because mm-hmm. of some of the positions that I took. Yeah, yeah. It was a confusing and time. Very confusing, <laughs> sure, because we were coming from very different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And I was like working my way back to God. Philosophically. And you were coming from like the ultra conservative mm-hmm. right hand evangelical evangelical position. Mm-hmm. And and we crashed. We sort of crashed <laughs> together. And I was you were yeah, unfortunately my my ascendance, my coming back to God probably helped you to uh-huh. sort of I was going to say we helped each other come down and mm-hmm. then and then now almost we're building again together homeostasis a brand new vision that is John, I don't know, for me incredibly exciting. John so. homeostasis. Homeostasis. <laughs> we, you came from yours. I came from mine. We got. We came to an equilibrium. Uh, yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah, and farther up and farther in. It's exactly. Like we're not. We're not stuck somewhere where you know we're staying at the same position. That's actually what yeah. frustrates both of us, and mm-hmm. has. Oh, it's what drove me away from the church. Yeah. And I think it was. At the time when we finally came together, you had come to a point where you couldn't go any farther with the mm-hmm. church because it was like, what do I do with this? It's, it, it it's was not boy. farther up, further in. But it's not taking you anywhere yeah. anymore. And it, yeah, I don't want to say that either because it's not supposed to. <laughs> it's hard to explain. Let's put it that way. Right. So, yeah, we crashed together and then God used you for me and me for you. And yes. now we're going forward <laughs> together. We're going forward you. together as one flesh. <laughs> yes. Yes. As one flesh. Okay. So at any rate, that was how it felt for these two. And we said about nothing was ever going to happen again, the end of sort of quietness. Okay, so hours and hours seemed to go by in this dead calm, and they hardly noticed that they were getting colder and colder. <laughs> and that's what happens when you're in that point. You get colder inside. Okay, so here's the portion that is the reason we chose this whole chapter to discuss. So once I realized the deeper meaning of this, it became very exciting. But at last, Lucy noticed two other things. One was that the sky on the east side of the hill was a little less dark than it had been an hour ago. And I say that's what life was like when I first got together with you. Mm -hmm. 
the sky on the east side of the hill was just a little less dark. <laughs> the other was some tiny movement going on in the grass at her feet. At first, she took no interest in this. What did it matter? Nothing mattered now. But at last, she saw what whatever it was had begun to move up the upright stones of the stone table. And now, whatever they were, were moving about on Aslan's body. She peered closer. They were little gray things. Ugh, said Susan from the other side of the table. How beastly! There are hard little mice crawling over him. Go away, you little beast! And she raised her hand to frighten them away. Wait, said Lucy, who had been looking at them more closely still. Can you see what they're doing? Both girls bent down and stared. I do believe, said Susan, but how queer they're nibbling away the cords. That's what I thought, said Lucy. I think they're friendly mice. <laughs> Poor little things, they don't realize he's dead. They think it'll do some good untying him. <laughs> and this is what we're trying to get at. Mm -hmm. It's the little things that untie God, that yeah. loosen him. I shouldn't even say untie him, they loosen him. Yeah. And to loosen the cords. Right. Yeah. And we look at these little th these little people, these little things, and we say, they don't realize God's dead. Mm -hmm. um, they think it's going to do some good, or they don't realize that it, this is so convoluted and so messed up, they think they're going to do some good. Yeah. It was quite definitely lighter by now. They could see the mice nibbling away dozens and dozens, even hundreds of little field mice. And at last, one by one, the ropes were all gnawed through. The mice crept away again. The girls cleared away the remains of the gnawed ropes. Aslan looked more like himself without them. Every moment his dead face looked nobler, and as the light grew, they could see it better. Yeah. The girls are kind of like the big structure people mm -hmm. yeah. who are not able to fix the problem. The I mean, because they become queens in mm -hmm, Narnia. Exactly. But they're kind of like... Christian leaders. The Christian leaders. The move, the Christian movements right. we see all the and, time. And they can't untie Aslan. But who can untie right. him? You can. That's right. <laughs> Each and every people. one of you. And they don't, the little people don't see the broad structure. No. They don't see the network of they just, knots that they are just, tying God Right. Down. They just see the knot where they are. They are. The moment, right. the, the place the where they cord. are. Right. And they gnaw on that one little where cord. They, where they where are. Where they are. Yeah. And then and the neatest thing is they just crept away again. Yeah. That's it. They go away after they do their work. And then that way, it says the girls then cleared away the remains of the gnawed rope. The ropes are gnawed already. And then the big people, the, you know, the Christian leaders, then they can clear away the ropes. Mm -hmm. But we are the ones that have to do the gnawing, right. the little mice. The little work always starts at the level of the individual. It doesn't happen big scale. Right. It right, is right. you. You are listening to this that matter, mm -hmm, right. that can make the difference right. by gnawing on that one small, seemingly insignificant cord. Right. It's not insignificant. Right. It right. is the cord that binds down part of Aslan, part of what God needs to do to correct right. what has gone wrong. And all you need to do is loosen it. Yeah. <laughs> and gnaw through it and then allow someone else to clear it away. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass 
and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.